ladies and gentlemen, this has been so much fun that I thought we should stop it and talk about something a little dry. And so it's not always the best to give a kind of dry talk after dinner, especially when wine and cannabis and other substances have been consumed. But we have a very tight schedule, and I'm going to run through really rapidly some of the things that I teach in a course for journalists. Because journalists should be good public policy analysts. Or another way to think about it is good public policy analysts are good journalists. They figure out what's going on. <clears throat> so the first thing I'd like to introduce, is this working, gentlemen? Let me turn it on. It is not. No, no, this little clickery thing. For some reason it's not working. Can you advance? Gentlemen, yeah, someone could help ahead. me on this. Yeah. Yeah, we heard it. Turn it on or something. We did hear it. Complicated like that. It's making a blinking thing, so. It suggests that it is turned on. I'm going to call him right now. Let me give you a little background then, uh, because with the work that I do with the Atlas Network, I'm often involved with partners. There we go. I need the clicker thing back again. Um, and helping them to focus on how to advance sound public policy. We work with teams all around the world. I was just in Beirut, and we had eight teams doing public policy research on uh, demonopolization of electricity, of water, of telecommunications, of public-private partnerships for infrastructure, and a whole range of other things, including the budget crisis, which they're facing. I've uh, done this in Ghana and plenty of other countries as well. And this is a segment of what I talk about. So the first thing, oops, there we go. Uh, my hero, Fred Bastiat, one of my personal goals in life is for Bastiat to be translated into every literary language, that is to every language that has a newspaper, press, and books, and so on. I think he's so good and so important. Anyone can understand him. A taxi driver, a farmer, a prime minister, Professor, anybody can get Basquiat, and his insights are deep and important. He talked about the difference between the good and the bad economist. And the bad one confines himself to just the visible effects, the thing you can see. A bridge was built, there's some benefit. So Jeff talked about that. There's almost always a benefit to any policy. Someone benefited. But the question is, what are the other effects that it has beyond the visible ones of the people who a benefit, and usually these have to be foreseen. We have to think about them. He talked about what we now call opportunity cost. Every choice has a cost. Something is given up when we make a choice. Normally, in personal life, we expect the thing we got to be more valuable than what we gave up. But in public policy, frequently that's not the case. That the benefit to some group was much smaller than the aggregated sum of the costs to everyone else in society. And it's our job to make those visible because you can't see them. The most important reason is you can't see what didn't happen, what would have happened had this tax not been imposed or this policy imposed. Henry Hazlitt wrote for many years to the New York Times. I'll put it very neatly in his wonderful book, Economics in One Lesson, trace not merely the immediate results, but the results in the long run. Not merely the primary consequences, but the secondary consequences. And not merely the effects on some special group, but the effects on everyone. That is the job of a, of a good economist. And in particular, what we want to do, think about public policy as journalists, but also as citizens, is to understand complex holes and distinguish cause and effect. So, in the discussion earlier with Jeff, the issue came up of 1790. We'll talk about that in a moment. But let's say that I want to discuss the Harrison Narcotics Act of 1914. 
and its consequences, which have been very deleterious, been a catastrophe for our country. If I want to repeal it, first it doesn't mean that I want all the other things they had in 1913, some of which were terrible. It doesn't mean I want Jim Crow laws, because I want to roll everything back to 1913. I want to tease out the effects of this law. And this law criminalized large portions of the population and has driven violent crime in the United States, especially after President Nixon really began the federal war on crime and began to enforce this in subsequent legislation. Same thing if we talk about, well, what were the number of government agencies in 1790? Maybe you'd like to have that. doesn't mean you want everything else they had in 1790, including <coughs> uh, cholera and um, smallpox uh, and slavery and other things of that sort. But also what we want to do, and this is where I think American journalism usually falls short, in contrast to journalism in a lot of other countries, I don't think they're just being snooty, I think Swiss and German and French uh, newspapers are generally of a higher quality than Americans. Because they ask why is this happening? The American approach is you just report the bare facts. And I'm not going to tell you what I think, that's on the editorial page. In fact, the editorial page ends up on the front page. It ends up being integrated into it, but in a way that isn't honest and straightforward. <coughs> And a good newspaper in England or Germany, you understand it's a classical liberal or a conservative or a socialist, whatever newspaper, people know that. And their views and their analysis of why this is happening are brought up front and center. So we want to understand more than just physical descriptions. You can't understand Lebanese politics unless you know Lebanese history. But the typical American newspaper will show up and they'll say, wow, these people were fighting each other, and the 18 people were killed. I remember the coverage of the 1975 Civil War was astonishingly bad. And you would conclude they're insane, with no background to why that Civil War was started. The confessional system that the country had inherited from the 1940s, and to understand the conflicts over the spoils among all the various groups. One thing that you will find if you go to Lebanon, people do not fight over religion. They are organized by religious confession. But trust me, they are not fighting about that. As you see when Shia leaders of Hezbollah sit down and have a glass of wine with you, they are not proposing an Iranian-style theocracy. They're fighting over loot because their warlord is fighting with other warlords. Now, just a couple of basic principles of public policy analysis. I'll run through them very quickly. Uh, I'm going to run through all of these very fast. <clears throat> Closed behavioral systems, what it means to be a methodological individualist. What does rationality mean? Fundamental uh, minimal definition. Uh, what, how we make choices, finally. So let's start with the first one. Uh, Closed behavioral systems. Instead of having a theory for human beings as they interact in politics, and business, and market, and family. It's easier, in fact, uh, scientifically more sound, to try to have a theory of human behavior that can account for all of those, of human behavior, rather than saying, well, there's human being as churchgoer, human being as business person, human being as politician. We want to understand how human beings work. <clears throat> and the economic approach has the capacity to do that. Doesn't mean it solves all problems or explains everything, but it should be robust enough to explain such things as church structure. There's a great deal of literature on the economics of religion. It doesn't mean people are calculating when they worship God, but understanding churches as competitive in a free society, as organized by entrepreneurs, as by delivering services in order to bring people in. So it shouldn't be a surprise that in Germany, I had this experience, my German cousins, distant relatives came to America. They said, we want to go to Catholic Church. Where should we go? And I found a local, I'm not Catholic, but I found the church for them. They went, came back. So how was it? They said, it was distasteful. I said, why? They said, they asked us for money. And I said, 
All right, I understand. Because in Germany, you pay the Kirchensteuer, the church tax. And all the pastors and priests receive a income from the state. <clears throat> and I said, well, let me ask you a question. Was the church full? Yeah, it was really full. It was crowded. I said, were there lots of children there? Yes, a lot of children came. Did they put money in the plate? They did. They'd come by and they put just a coin or something. I said, do you see children in, in Catholic Church in Germany? No, it's mainly elderly ladies. And not many. I said, think about it. Think about it. There is a causal connection and relationship there. Uh, but most importantly, when it comes to politicians, they don't have uh, wings no, or halos. they certainly don't. They're people, <laughs> just like you and me. And I don't agree with those people who consider all politicians are always bad. This can't be true. All of us have the capacity for good and bad. But moreover, we need good politicians to advance libertarian solutions because no bad law ever repealed itself. We need people willing to be politicians to advance our principles. But we should understand they are also mortal, and they will be subjected to temptations. Now, methodological individualism is a pretty simple point. We often read, in my area of political science, the organic thesis. The state acted, the nation did this, the people chose, and they're treated as a big person. <clears throat> but the individualist approach is different. A group is not a big person like you or me. It's not helpful to say France invaded Tunisia. You say, why? Well, France was angry. France was peeved. France was jealous. Right? We understand people get angry and peeved and jealous and it influences their behavior. But it's not interesting to say that of a nation, and it obscures all the interesting questions of why France invaded Tunisia. Who made the decisions? Small number of people. And they got 38,000 other people, both soldiers, whom they conscripted to go there. But now the questions are, why did they decide that? Why did the soldiers obey? Those are the interesting questions of politics, and just saying, France was angry, <coughs> answers nothing. Now, you can think of it in a different way also. Groups do exist. Mrs. Thatcher said something very interesting years ago. She said, there's no such thing as society. There's only individuals and their families. That was very interesting, because she had to admit there are families. Groups do exist. It's not the case that only individuals exist. There are such things as groups. What is a group? It's made up of all the members and their complex relationships with each other. Relationships in a family of love, harmony and strife, and all the things that constitute families. Uh, that makes a group we call a family, or a church, or a synagogue, or a chess club, or anything else. It's real, but it's not the same as another individual member of the group. And that's the mistake that collectivists systematically make. <clears throat> Think about a forest and a tree. That is a tree. That is a forest. A forest is not a big tree. It's a lot of trees and all their complex relationships, the canopy trees and the little sneaky trees that try to send up vines and so on. We could talk about an ecosystem. It makes sense to say that's a forest. But don't think of the forest like a big tree. Because that's a social group, but don't think of it as like just a big individual person. You'll miss all the interesting questions. Now, rationality, we talk about a lot. I'll provide just this minimal criteria of what it means to be a rational actor. Transitively ordered preferences. Transitivity in mathematics. If this is bigger than this thing, this thing is bigger than that thing, this thing had better be bigger than the third thing or you have a really weird world that you live in. So transitivity is important, but it's also important in uh, choice. If you prefer an apple to a banana and a banana to a carrot, rational person is gonna prefer uh, an apple to a carrot and not a carrot to an apple. Why is that? Well, if you didn't have transitively ordered 
preferences, you couldn't make choices that made your life better. You'd end up in infinite loops of choice. Every choice made you feel better off, but you had less, whatever it happened to be. So imagine that Tom prefers an apple to banana, banana to a carrot, but when someone says, dude, you want a carrot for your apple? He says, yeah, I'll take the carrot. But then he's offered a banana in exchange for the carrot. He'll take the banana. Someone says, you want an apple for the banana? Sure, I'll take that. And someone else comes and says, how about a, offering a carrot for that apple? He'd end up constantly making choices, each one of which was his preferred outcome, and he'd get stuck in a loop. Now, it's possible there are such people. I don't say it's not possible. Uh, but there are several things to remember. If people were systematically like this, they're probably in institutions. <laughs> they're easy to cheat. You could cheat them because they want, they prefer by a little bit, you could shave that off, and at the end they'd have nothing and say, wow, I feel great. Every choice made me better off. And it's also possible that some of our choices are normally non-transitively ordered with regard to certain kinds of risk. It's possible, it's an open question, whether people have systematically irrational approaches to some kinds of risks. I don't want to go into that. But this is a minimal criterion of rationality. Rationality doesn't mean you think a lot. People say, whoa, you haven't met my brother. He just makes snap decisions. Well, snap decisions can be rational as well. So <clears throat> rationality means the choices you make are capable of improving your situation. They have to be transitively ordered uh, for that. This is one of my cats. They get into everything. You got this is Isabel Patterson, is her name. A great writer, or it's a long name for a cat, so she answers to Issy. Now, the next point, intentions and consequences. Right? Consequences may be intended or unintended. And they may be good or bad. So you can make a little matrix and feel very scientific about it. But the important point is that consequences and tensions are not necessarily the same thing. And this is missed by some of the great political thinkers of our time, like Senator Elizabeth Warren, for example. This is a point that she does, doesn't get. My intentions are good. Anything I do will have good consequences. Now, choices are also made between alternative possibilities. And here's a very interesting point. You run into it constantly. There's a market failure, which usually means something I don't like. It has a technical definition. And there are market failures in the world. It's not the same as this business failed. That's a business failure, not a market failure. But people identify some problem, and they say, well, let's have the government fix it. <clears throat> you don't, don't, don't get to choose between the real world, which is flawed, and perfection. Harold Demsetz called that Nirvana Economics. And there's a very delightful book by um, Arthur Selden, since passed away from the Institute of Economic Affairs in London, in which he took that and flipped it on its head. He said, imagine, we say every time we find a problem with the state, we posit a perfect, ideal market as the solution. And he went through systematically, and you see how irrational that would be. But that's what we face every day. There's a market flaw, government will fix it. But government is just made of people like you and me. No wings. They want to appeal to the right standard if we're going to talk about some improvement. And perfection is just not part of that. <clears throat> how is it going to be implemented? When I go to a lot of countries, I say, imagine the people implementing this are the people you meet in government service. And it just shocks people out of their socialism. <laughs> it's right there. Oh, God. I said, those people will be implementing the programs you want if you're a socialist. And it's pretty good shock therapy. Because I realize, no, I want perfect people like, like me to run it. But I said, you won't get those people. You'll get those people. And then it changes the calculus. And choices are almost always made on the margin. 
And this is a pretty important point. And I could give you a kind of tedious discussion of marginal principles or the principles of the margin economics, but I decided not to do that. I'm tedious enough. So you're satiated with tediousness. But I want to give an example of why I think it's important. A very common mistake. I run into this frequently. Did you know in 2015, that's the number of people, according to the National Institutes of Health, who passed away that they attribute to cancer. That's the number whose passage, whose death they attribute to heart disease. And now the shocking truth. Look at what we're spending on cancer. Heart disease is being shortchanged. That's not right. They should be proportional. It seems rational, and you run into this constantly in discussions. But it's the wrong question. The important question is, what impact, assuming you're allocating a budget here, so we're going to set aside questions whether the government should be doing that, if you're allocating this budget that combines some of this, will another dollar on cancer research or another dollar on heart disease generate a bigger increase in longevity or reduction in mortality? That's the question. And these numbers don't tell you anything about that. The fact that they're not proportional is simply unimportant and irrelevant. The question is, if we put $10,000 or $10 million from here to here, or vice versa, which one would have the bigger impact? That's the choice of the margin. It's a very important point. All action is at the margin. I should say almost all. Rarely do we have to choose on any other <clears throat> basis. So we cannot conclude on the basis of that information that too much is being put into cancer research and too little in heart disease research. It's simply inadequate. Pass on. Now, public policy, some implications that we're thinking about. Rules matter. Rules are very important. Rules can be chosen. You can say, let's change the rules that govern us. They create institutions which give form to incentives. I'll talk a little bit about political markets and free markets, or economic exchange markets, and then discuss whether society is a rational chooser at all. But first, rules matter, and they can determine outcomes. I remember this still persisted. It was shocking so many years after Anthony Down's economic theory of democracy uh, in a discussion with a dowdy old English uh, politics professor. And the discussion came up of voting and why Belgian politics are so fractious. And British politics and American politics, by contrast, before the last few years, seem kind of stable and centrist in comparison. And the answer was, it is the unique genius of the Anglo-Saxon heritage. <laughs> OK. I said, and I said, well, let's pursue this a little bit. He says, yes. I said, let's talk about the Belgians. He says, hot-blooded. So you have never been to Belgium. Right? The Belgians are not known as a hot-blooded people. Spaniards, Catalonians, Italians. Belgians, no, not so much. Uh, but the voting rules might be a better candidate for explaining the difference between Belgian and American politics. We have a system here called winner-take-all, first-past-the-post. If you win the most seats in the congressional district, you get the whole congressional seat, the whole vote. Whoever gets first-past-the-post, gets it all, winner take all. Belgium, in contrast, the wild, tempestuous Belgians, have proportional representation. So if your party gets to a certain, certain threshold, you get representation in the parliament. Germany has this, a uh, number of European countries have that. This one will yield a two-party system in general. This one will yield a multi-party system that'll be externally look more fractious and ideological. 
So let's look at the Belgian political system. These are all the parties in the Belgian parliament. Right? There are a lot of them. Right? And there are all kinds of different things. There's communists and nationalists and classical liberals and Christian conservatives and all sorts of different views. That is, was, uh, prior to the previous election, the American Congress in the House of Representatives. Two parties and this group of parties. Now, is it because the Belgians are wild and hot-blooded and fly off the handle? Well, we could test. Trust me, this is not the case. It's because they have a different voting system. And the voting system determines a very different outcome. So rules are important. But it's all across regulatory policy, tax policy. A little change in the rules can have a big change in the outcome. The apartheid system in South Africa when it was first instituted, did not talk about color. They talked about other characteristics that were proxies for color. And that's pretty common. When you want to hurt some group or advantage another group, and you don't want to be transparent about it, find some characteristic that's a proxy for membership in that group. And that's done all the time, even in the United States and in regulatory policy and tax policy and so on. Look at the tax code someday. And it happens to be just a little hole exactly in this shape. And oddly enough, the lawyer who helped to get that written represents a company that has exactly that shape. Just pop right through it. Although the company's name is never mentioned in the legislation. But rules can also be chosen. We can choose rules at various different levels. Legislation, regulatory policy, and constitutional change. Constitutions are about people sitting down and saying, let's change the rules. So there's a simple example. In uh, much of Europe, for a very long time, they played the following game. The rules are pretty simple. The game is called religious warfare. And we decide what religion will be the religion of the state that everyone must conform to. So let's, let's work it out. Will it be Roman Catholicism? Will it be Calvinism? Or Church of England? Or Lutheranism? Or Socinianism? Or various other things. And the fun part is the losers are massacred. Okay? So, so, so it's, you're going to go into bonus time. So the losers get massacred. And people played that game for a long time. And after a while, they got tired of that game, and they chose another game. And finally, that game, of course, the Westphalian system was, whatever the prince chooses will be the religion in that principality, and the other people can escape to the other principality. And it brought about a kind of religious peace, not, not religious freedom, but a religious peace for some time. And the Americans pioneered the idea, they said, that's just not a fun game. Why don't we play the game called live and let live? And that's the game which I live and you live. Right? It's a different game. But I'll mention something. It's not easy to go from the first game to the last game. That's really hard. And in places that have had these religious conflicts, it's not just that they have bad ideas that contributes, but they're also in a strategic interaction where disarming first is often a fatal move. So mutual disarmament is about getting the conditions and the rules of the game right. We can distinguish choosing a move within a game, choosing the rules of the game. Those are two different kinds of interaction. What we want to do fundamentally in a lot of games is choose the rules of the game to generate positive sum interaction. People usually think the world is characterized by negative, by zero-sum interactions. Most people, most of the time, think that. Ask them, where do you think business profits come from? Well, they come, they're paid for by the consumers, right? There's a gain, there was a loss. Anytime someone gains, someone else must have lost. And they all balance out. The sum of the payoffs is equal to zero. Those are really uncommon. They do exist in some gambling interactions and so on, but they're really rare in real life. Much more common is the negative sum game. Some of the benefits is less than zero. 
If you were to walk out and make the wrong turn and go into some dark alley and someone jumps you and beats you up, they get what's in your wallet, in my case, a bunch of plastic cards and about 60 American dollars. <clears throat> uh, they might run away with that, but I can guarantee that the savage beating they received while doing it will cost them more than $60 <laughs> when they go to the hospital. So, or if they were lucky, and there were like 11 of them, and they hurt me, it's probably going to be more than $60 of harm that I will suffer. That's a negative sum game. And then there's positive sum games. We call that voluntary exchange. The reason people as exchange is they expect the benefit, and the other person expects the benefit. What we want to do is change the rules so all those negative sum games rent-seeking, protectionism, special interests, and so on, are transformed into positive some games. And it's not easy. It takes a lot of strategic thinking and hard work. Those are my other cats. As I said, they just get into everything. Uh, this is sushi, and that is salmon. And they are sisters in crime, so constantly getting into trouble. Now, rules create institutions. And I was thinking about Professor McCloskey's mistake earlier. <laughs> and I think we're having a disagreement about what we mean by the word institutions. She said, what's well, liberalism? If they get liberalism, they'll become prosperous. And that's actually what I mean by institutions. You get the rule of law doesn't mean they're just more efficient at, at beheading people or things like that. It means you have a set of principles that facilitate voluntary exchange at low cost and that are not predatory, oriented towards some predatory uh, special interests. And we do see this. Uh, some of you will recognize this. It's a picture of the Korean Peninsula taken from an extraordinarily tall ladder. Uh, and it's just such a striking image. Right? And I've been to North Korea, and it is Anyone listening, it's the most wonderful place in the world. It's amazing. I felt uplifted by the leadership of the regime there. Actually, I brought back a lot of books about that, about how every time Kim Jong-il went to some factory when he left, the workers waved with tears in their eyes the joy of being supervised and guided by such a wise and benevolent sociopath. <laughs> But it's an interesting case study. Uh, Post-colonial theorists, if you've been colonized, you'll be behind forever. You can never get rich. They were colonized by the Japanese Empire with extraordinary brutality. Attempted extinction of Korean culture and language. Children were beaten and whipped for speaking Korean. Korean language was not taught. We've heard of the, the comfort women, the women who were kidnapped and made sex slaves of the Imperial Army. They suffered terribly from this. They suffered from the war, the Korean War across the peninsula. Is it culture? They had a basically common culture. Is it being ahead at the beginning? North Korea had more industrial capacity than South Korea at the end of the war. So much of the fighting occurred here. Is it language? Is it this? Is it that? It seems it's socialism versus free markets that explains the difference, that creates incentives for Korean people to produce life. Now, there are different incentives in politics and in markets. And we had a discussion about this very important point that Vilfredo Pareto articulated so brilliantly in his sociological work. The state has a unique ability to diffuse costs on large numbers of people because the state is a compulsory organization. You live there, you have to be a taxpayer. So it can impose small costs on large numbers of people, aggregate them into large benefits, and small groups of people benefit from those. The obvious examples being subsidies, tariffs, and so on. This generates huge benefits for small groups of people. Think about the sugar subsidies in the United States is not so much a subsidy as a restraint on importation, 
we pay the much higher than the world price for sugar. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite stunning. Uh, why? Well, to benefit eight sugarcane producers in Florida, in Louisiana, and thousands of people engage in the dumbest way known to make sugar, which is sugar beets in the Midwest and Iowa and so on. So it's a very small number of people. But the cost to us when we put sugar in our tea, it's just a tiny bit more. It's not that much. But add that up over the whole population. Every year, it's billions. But every time you go to get some sugar, it's very small. Now this had, by the way, some unintended consequences. It shattered the American candy industry. As it turns out, sugar is a major ingredient in candy production. Who knew? It's totally unanticipated. And so the American lifesaver, right, that most American candy, hard, tasteless, and painful when you bite down on it, right? They don't make them in America anymore. The Canadians, America's greatest national security threat. Right? Think about it. Whenever I think national security threat, first thing that comes to mind is Canada. No, I'm serious. 4,000 miles undefended border, and over 90% of the Canadian population lives within 100 miles of that border. They're waiting, right? We'll turn our back, we'll let our guard down, whoo! Everyone will be seeing A all the time and will be Canadianized. Well, it turns out the Canadians are clever. They figured out they could smuggle sugar and undermine our national security in the form of candy. So they make candy in Canada, bring it across the border, brazen violation of our laws, <coughs> smuggling in candy. Makes me so angry. Uh, now some of the useful concepts here, rent seeking has nothing to do with landlords asking to be paid. It's a political process of gaining benefits through the state. Uh, rational ignorance, I'm not referring only to myself, but all of us are rationally ignorant. Most people don't know about the sugar system because it costs too much to become informed. So we are rationally ignorant about most of the harm that is being done to us. Because becoming informed about it is too expensive. So imagine that you had a uh, bird, that, what is the cost of a first class stamp in America now? 75 cents or, who knows? I, don't, I just buy the ones that say forever, uh, 50 cents or something like that. Uh, imagine there's a cost to every citizen of only 48 cents a year Right, but add that up, that's a lot of money, over hundreds of millions of people. Who will write a letter to the member of Congress when they have to reach for the stamp and it's 50 cents? Right? Who would even become informed when the book about it cost $11.98? We're not gonna do it. The tyranny of the status quo, which Milton and Rose Friedman talked about, right? People just assume all these systems are gonna be here forever. It's costly to get rid of them. The status quo has a certain tyrannical status. And lastly, why do people vote? It's an interesting question. How many votes are de decided, how many elections by one vote? Not many. There are a couple, but not many. They're usually for a mosquito control board in some little town someplace. There are not many that are decided by one vote. So we would say, eh, right? You'd think the chance of affecting the outcome is vanishingly small, but people do vote more than a purely rational approach might of weighing the costs and benefits. Well, it's because they're expressing their identity. I went and voted. I wanted to vote for the things I thought were better, even though I know it'll have no impact. I still did it. The problem with expressive voting is people can express preferences in a costless way or very low cost. Most people would not want to smash down the doors of their neighbor's house and say, are you smoking marijuana? And arrest them and beat them and cudgel them and take them out and put them in a little cage. 
It's very costly. I've tried. It's just not worth it. <laughs> Page alone is expensive. Uh, but it's easy to go and vote for drug prohibition. That doesn't cost me anything. But it might impose huge burdens on the whole society, including the apparatus to pay for it, which I pay for through my taxes. But that's not evident when I'm casting the vote. So a lot of voting will generate very irrational outcomes, things that many people would not have wanted. But lastly, let me look at society as a rational chooser. And I want to talk about the famous condorcet dodgson arrow impossibility theorem. It's usually called the arrow impossibility theorem. But it was discovered at least two times before by the Marquis de Condorcet, by Charles Dodgson, went by another name. Knows? All right? The author of Alice in Wonderland and so on. But his, his, his name, formal name was Charles Dodgson. He was the mathematician at uh, Christ Church in Oxford. <clears throat> Turns out, that there may not be transitively ordered preferences in society when we engage in collective choice. So let's say we designate a preference as 50% plus one of a group. They make the decision for the group. It could be that if there are three or more options, which there frequently are, society doesn't have transitively ordered preferences. I'll go through a kind of tedious, very quick uh, formal logical presentation of this and then why I think it's important. Let's say that we have a choice. This dates back to the Vietnam War, but I'll just recycle it. Uh, we have three groups, three preferences, three groups of preferences. We're talking about military policy toward Al-Qaeda, ISIS, uh, the Democratic Party, whatever it is. Um, and three groups. The Hawks, their first choice, bomb them. Just bomb them, right? Second choice, you can't bomb them. You do not want to get involved in a prolonged land war in Massachusetts. Do not do that. Right? So that's nothing. Just stay out. Third choice, the least preferred, is ground troops. It's okay? so a coherent. We know people who articulate that view in various military conflicts. Then we've got the doves. They say, whoa, bombs kill children. We're not going to drop bombs. So we prefer nothing. That's our preference, right? We do not want to have blood on our hands. Coherent. Second, you can't bomb them because the bombs will fall on orphanages and innocent people, ground troops. And then their least preferred is bombing. Again, this is a coherent set of preferences. Then we have what I will call the UN types. They love ground troops. They want them everywhere. Little jaunty blue berets, and every Iraqi or Bosnian will have his own or her own UN Dutch soldier to accompany them everywhere. So that's, you know, there are a lot of people who favor that. Uh, second, if you can't do that, you can't do nothing. You got to do something to Obama. Right? So this is the Madeleine Albright approach. You can't do nothing. I remember saying, well, why not? Because you can't. You'd be a bad person. And their least preferred option is nothing, because you can't stand by and do nothing. So these are coherent sets of preferences. Let's think about a vote. So we're going to say, all right, we're going to put it up to a vote. Let's say bombing or nothing. Well, if you remember, we'll go back. Let me just go backward now. I'll just trust me on that. Uh, that um, there were two for bombing over nothing. Right? So bombing wins. Someone says, whoa, whoa, what about the ground troops? Okay, we'll have a vote. And in our matrix, there are two of them preferred ground troops to bombing. That was the UN types and the doves. This one was the UN types and the hawks. And someone might say, wow, we didn't have a vote about bombing or nothing. Well, there were two of our ground troops, pardon me, ground troops won. There were two that preferred nothing to ground troops. So now we're back to nothing. But then, the majority preferred bombing over nothing. So we can just repeat this infinitely. 
you'll end up in a choice loop. You can't come up with a social preference. Society isn't a rational chooser, certainly in this case. There are various complications. You can have single peaked preferences and all kinds of other voting uh, choices. But it should help us to understand whenever someone says society chose, ask, is society a rational chooser? And not be swept away by the methodological collectivism inherent in it. And we're going to bonus time. I want to bring up one more thing. Uh, what is comparative advantage? And the reason I mention this is it's so badly taught in economics courses. It's just a handful of exceptions here. It is very badly taught. I've talked to kids, young people with master's degree in economics, and they cannot explain comparative advantage. Or they get confused by a rubbish term, competitive advantage, which as far as I can tell, does not mean anything. What is, I, I, I don't know what it means when I ask you, what does it mean, competitive advantage? Well, it's the advantage of it's, it's, it's competitive. Uh, but they can't explain it. Well, I want to talk about why it's important, it's the foundation of human cooperation. When we exploit comparative advantage and specialize, making those goods we can produce at lowest cost, we're able to consume more than we can produce. Sounds kind of paradoxical. We're able to consume more than we are capable of producing. Well, let me give a simple two-person, two-good economy. That's T-W-O, not T-O-O. Uh, we could add uh, more people, it wouldn't change. So I randomly chose two names, Tom and Lynn. And we have two goods, apples and fish. And so imagine that we're going to be producing these goods. And we start out by saying, what's the maximum that Tom can produce if all he does is go out fishing in a day? And it's 50 fish. Or, if he spends all day doing nothing but appling, he gets 50 apples. Lynn is almost godlike. In a day of only fishing, she can get 100 fish and only appling 200 apples. So there's a technical term in the economic literature for Tom. Tom is a loser. <laughs> He's not good at anything. Uh, so why would Lynn want to trade with a loser? And you run into this all the time. Why, how would it be beneficial to trade with poor countries? This is a form of that question. I want to think about that. Well, let's say that they're producing in isolation. There's no trade between them. But each of them had mothers who said, you need a balanced diet. Not fish all the time or apples all the time. Half fish and half apples. So they divide their time. If Tom divides his time, it could be 50 or 50. He says, I'm going to remember my mother's dietary advice. It's 25 and 25. Same thing for Lynn. He goes from 100 to 50 and from 200 to 100. Mathematical ratios are constant. And they're producing an isolation, and that's what they get. But then Lynn comes along. And she is not only godlike in her abilities. She's smart. And she offers an exchange. She comes to time, she says, Tom, I'll give you 37 apples for 25 of your fish. Tom's not very bright, but he says, okay. He would have reasoned, were he clever enough, that 37 apples would cost him 37 fish. He can get it for only 25. Okay, I'll do that. He agrees to the deal. Now, they change their ratios of production. So Tom says, I'm not going to apple at all. I'm just going to fish. It goes from 25 to 0 and from 25 to 50. Lynn says, I'm going to focus more on appling. She goes from 100 to 150. And from 50, she goes down to 25. Again, the ratios are constant. Now they trade. Tom gave 25 over. He goes from 50 to 25. She goes from 25 to 50. That's what they would have had in the absence of trade. But now Tom has 37 apples 
and Lynn has 113. That's 12 more than he could have produced without this exchange, and 13 more than she could have produced. That's weird. And it's really deeply important. Paul Samuelson, very smart economist, he was wrong on many things, but was smart, was once asked, can you name something, Professor Samuelson, in economics that is both true and not obvious, or true, important, and not obvious? And he said this, it's true, it's really important, and it is not obvious. Aristotle didn't get it, Thomas Aquinas didn't get it, David Ricardo finally worked it out. It's also, in business, something we call the make or buy question. Should you, in your business, so let's say you're a car manufacturer, should you make tires? Maybe, but someone else might make the tires at less cost, less is given up. So most car manufacturers do not manufacture their own tires. They buy them from some other company that manufactures tires. Make or buy, it's a constant decision. Also in our personal lives. I made a decision years ago, I would not make my own clothes. I just said, no, I refuse. And I've stuck to that ever since. I would not make my own clothes. Uh, I would like to make more decisions like that, like cook food and clean house and wash clothes, but I haven't gotten there yet. So make or buy. Now why is that so important? Well, people focus on the absolute advantage that Lynn has. But that's not the thing that's important. It's comparative advantage, and each has a comparative advantage. Tom is the more efficient producer of fish. Every fish for him costs one apple. Lynn, for every fish it costs her, in the sense of giving up two apples, her cost of production for fish is twice Tom's, even though she's better at fishing. And that is what matters. So when we think of all the discussion about trade, almost never do you find people who understand this when they're publicly opining about trade. The last point is, this is not about international trade. It's about trade. Whether you're trading between Vermont and California, or California and Mexico, or between you and your neighbor, it doesn't matter. There's nothing unique about international trade with regard to its economic uh, principles. So rational choice analysis can help us understand production, exchange, politics, violence, just about any kind of human interaction. But I'll end up with a caveat. It doesn't mean it's the only way to understand human interaction. There's room for sociology, conceivably anthropology of some alternate universe. Uh, that's not true. Anthropology is a very important discipline. It's just most anthropologists, something about them. Uh, but there are some very fine anthropologists out there. Uh, James C. Scott is one I really, really like and appreciate from Yale University. Uh, so there are other ways, including the moral dimension. That should not be uh, forgotten. But economics is very powerful for understanding the world. And with that, I will conclude. I think the bar, I hope, will still be open, and we'll continue the conversation there. Thank you for your time.